We're now going to take the next 45 minutes and look at, at what our response is and should be as Christians. And we want to begin with God's vision for male and female. What, what, is, what is it that God intended? What is the design supposed to be for male and female? You see there the first point is that God's good creation of humanity included both a physical and spiritual reality. So you have something called materialism, which says there's only a physical world, spiritualism, which says there's only a spiritual world, but Christians say, no, no, there's both physical and spiritual realities, and particularly as it relates to human existence, we have a physical body and a spiritual soul. As Christians, we are dichotomists. We believe that the human body and the human soul are designed and created by God. The body and soul are both central, and they both are interrelated. Each person is both body and soul. As it relates to gender, um, a person's biological gender is created by God, is one and the same as his or her spiritual and gender identity, right? So we would say that sex and gender are the same. Focus on the family and their statement about the transgender movement say this, we affirm the Christian view that to be human is to be holistically united as body and spirit. Scripture teaches that even in heaven, believers will have a glorious, redeemed physical body. In contrast, transgender revisionists hold to the pagan view that the body is a container that the spirit is poured into. They erroneously conclude that either God has mistakenly put an opposite sex spirit into the wrong body, or that the body is not the real person, that only the spirit is real. As Christians, we believe that God can heal these disconnected Gnostic views and bring restoration and wholeness where body, soul, and spirit are in unity. So God's vision is for us to be both body and soul. God's vision, as you see secondly, is that he created humanity in his image. He designed two genders, male and female, to represent his image on earth. And so we believe that men and women are equal before God and distinct before God. That this equality and this distinction of genders is a beautiful, necessary, unalterable, life-giving, God-glorifying reality of human existence. And this reality impacts gender roles, sexuality, reproduction, marriage norms. It impacts shaving practices, right? There are men and there are women. And at least in our culture, we shave different parts of our bodies. We actually did a whole seminar almost exactly three years ago, similar in format to this one, called Created Male and Female. It's online, it's on the website, you can find that seminar. And we unpacked uh, the biblical vision for men and women, what is called the complementarian perspective, the idea that men and women are equal yet distinct. We complement one another, designed by God. In marriage and in the church, we believe that men and women are different, that men carry the responsibility for sacrificial leadership to lead as Christ, and that, and that wives in, in the home respond to that leadership, God's vision. Thirdly, God's vision, um, I can say this, that transgender ideology is unhealthy and harmful because it breaks from God's good and beautiful creation design. See, listen, Christians are not opposed to gender, transgender ideology because we are conservatives stuck in the past. That's not why we are opposed to it. But we have a positive vision for God's design. Right? And so we not only need to stand against falsehood and speak truth, we also need to speak out and more importantly, I think, live out this positive design for men and women created in God's image, equal yet different. And my desire for us at Living Hope and, and as Christians is that we would be known more for what we're for than simply just what we're against. Does that make sense? We need to show the world a biblical vision um, we need to show the world a biblical vision for, through women who are feminine but not sexualized. 
through men who are strong but not abusive, through marriages where husbands and wives love and serve and respect each other, through young boys and girls that are raised to become Christ-like men and women according to their created sex as well as their unique and individual freedom to live out their personality and their style and their likes. Which brings me to my fourth point, that I believe that unhealthy gender stereotypes have the potential the potential to contribute to gender confusion in young boys and girls. I do not believe this is the root cause, but I believe that an over-exaggerated and unhealthy gender stereotypes, both in the culture and at times, sadly, in the church, can contribute to gender confusion. While male and female are unarguably different and unarguably defined by biological sex, how masculinity and how femininity are played out and lived out and expressed is impacted by one's God-given personality and the surrounding culture. And tragically, some teenage girls have been sucked into gender confusion because they didn't fit into the gender stereotype that girls aren't supposed to like to fish or get dirty or be competitive in sports. Instead, to be a girl, you should present yourself as prissy and sexually provocative. And that is an unhealthy stereotype. Tragically, some teenage boys have been sucked into gender confusion because they didn't fit the gender stereotype that boys shouldn't like art or theater or flowers or dance, but instead, boys should present themselves as hard and domineering. That is an unhealthy and false gender stereotype. And so you take a little boy who doesn't fit an over-exaggerated cultural stereotype of manhood, and you mix into that some bullying in his social circle, And you mix into that some family dysfunction, some mental health struggles like anxiety or depression, and then you mix in the highly social contagion aspect of this that Pastor Matt talked about and this false promise that if you resist your gender norm and if you deny your biological gender, you will find acceptance. And then you add into this toxic mix the ensnaring nature of sin and the deceptive influence of the devil, all of a sudden... Transgenderism may not be so hard to understand. We can see how young teenage boys and girls are looking to this to help solve the troubling state of their soul. And so we need to stand in grace and stand in truth and articulate and live out God's plan for men and women. And we need to recognize that strong, godly, Christ-like men can grow flowers. Amen? And they can be sensitive and they can excel in the arts. And strong, godly, Christ-like women can shoot deer and be brave and excel in sports. And yet we know that only men can grow beards and that usually, if, if a man works at it at least, they can lift more weight, right? There are biological differences. Only women, women and only women can always only be the ones to give birth to babies and to nurse them from their breasts. Gary Yagel, in his book, Anchor Your Child to God, it's, it's referenced in the, the footnotes on the back, says, every human is either distinctly male or distinctly female. The differences between male and female are not arbitrary or accidental, but intentional. God created them. They are designed to be different so that they can complete one another. Christians also recognize that God loves variety and that every male or female image bearer he creates is unique. No one perfectly fits gender norms because there is a great overlap of masculinity and femininity and because God is glorified by diversity. The secular world tries to explain these differences by deconstructing the genders, saying you can choose to be a boy or a girl. The fractured worldview denies God's divine design and God's sovereignty over gender and even the differences within the genders he has chosen 
for each person. So yes, male and female are equal and different. There are two sexes created by God to fulfill his image, to represent our creator on earth. As parents, we are called to raise and disciple our girls to be strong, godly women and to raise our boys to be strong, godly men. And yet this ideology is seeking to undermine and confuse our our sons and our daughters. And so I want to take a minute now to look at four principles, four insights for parents as we talk and as we guide our children through this. Whether you have a child that may be struggling with their gender identity or whether they have friends who are or whether they're just hearing about it in entertainment and social media. And again, remember, as, as Pastor Matt pointed out, those who struggle with, with gender identity are experiencing a dissonance, an internal conflict between their physical bodies and their non-physical or their spiritual core of who they are. And while the secular world says, well, their body must be long, let's, wrong, let's do all that we can to change and transform their body, as Christians, we say, look, the body is good. Yes, it's subject to the fall, but it's good. It's the heart that is primarily fallen, broken, and clouded, and it's the heart, not the body, that needs to be transformed. Again, I direct you to some of those resources on the back table, one from Focus on the Family. One is a book called When and How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex, and I would add When and How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex, Homosexuality, and Transgenderism. So four quick principles. The first is be first. First messages are heard the loudest. Parents, you have to decide when, at what age, to start talking to your kids about sexuality, sexual sin, about homosexuality, about transgenderism. But please, please err on the side of starting early rather than late. My wife and I, around the age of seven, we both sit down together as, with boys or girls. We sat, that, sat down with them and began the discussion. Not the talk, but a, a, a discussion that will begin for, be, be go on for 10, 20 years. Um, because listen, if they start hearing about sexual ethics, homosexuality, transgender ideology from the world, from their school, their friends, their social media, their movies, before you have talked explicitly, yes, explicitly with them, that is what they will believe. And, and whatever age they start asking questions, whether it's seven or ten or five, when they start asking questions, I recommend you answer, because if you don't answer, they will find someone who will. And I learned this the hard way when Simon was on the bus for kindergarten, and some of you were like, yeah, that's why I didn't put my son on the, on the bus. But, and he, he asked what his, daughter's private, his, 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 his sister's private parts were because we had brought her home from the hospital. He realized something was different. Well, I was too embarrassed to tell him. And the next day he came home knowing what it was called because he had asked somebody on the bus. And I said, never again. My kid asks a question, I will answer. Secondly, don't just be first, be clear. Be truthful and straightforward. We all know we should never lie to our kids, but you should also never hide, manipulate, or misrepresent the truth, even related to a difficult topic like sex, homosexuality, or transgenderism. And while we should never be graphic with our, with our kids, I do believe we should be explicit. And so that means if you have a gay brother and your child asks, you know, why is Uncle Joe's friend always at holiday parties, don't misrepresent or hide the truth. Sit down and give them a clear, truthful, age-appropriate answer for your gay brother. I remember talking with our kids about how men and women have sex, and, and one of my kids said, well, how can two men do that? Because they knew that was a thing. And I was like, that's not a question I want to answer, right? But I did answer it. I didn't give graphic detail. I simply just said something along the lines of, well, they, they try to use their private parts to express love and pleasure, but they simply can't have sex because they don't have what God designed them to have. 
So we need to be clear. Thirdly, we need to be consistent. As I said, this is a conversation. Don't have the talk. It's an ongoing conversation. Address issues as they come up. Seize the teachable moments of life. Be an askable parent. I remember watching America's Got Talent, and a stand-up comedian came up, and they did the backstory. And the backstory was that it was a, a transgender man, I think it was. And so we paused the show, and we had a conversation about what that is. And, and what God thinks about that. Be an askable parent. Keep this issue. Keep the issue of premarital sex, homosexuality, alcohol, vaping, drugs, any number of challenging topics. Keep it as an ongoing conversation. Please avoid common mistakes and don't think, well, we already talked about that once or they already know what I think, so we don't need to talk about it. Don't make that mistake. Don't feel like you need to be an expert. It's okay to say to your son or daughter, I don't know. Let's find out together. Please also don't be rude or dismissive. Don't mock those who are blinded by sin. Don't say something to your children like, oh, they're just whacked out. Don't worry about it. It may make no sense to you, but if the culture is thinking about it, if your kids are asking about it, it's something that you too need to think about. Guys, listen, if if you have a son or a daughter that's struggling with their spiritual faith, struggling with their mental health, struggling with gender ideology, listen and talk with them. Give them space to be open with you. Give them space so that you can be straightforward with them. Josh Glazier, um, in his Gospel Coalition blog, How to Talk with Your Kids About Transgender Ideology, says this. As parents, we can help our kids by taking seriously any signs of anxiety, depression, loneliness, or self-harm. This generation is experiencing mental health issues at alarming rates, and they need our attention, time, and intervention. But not the false promise that all their pain will disappear if they can just pass as the other sex. Our kids need reassurance that their experiences of insecurity, bodily discomfort, and social awkwardness during adolescence are normal. Are normal for most kids everywhere. And our kids need to know that if they are feeling at odds with their gender, they're experiencing gender dysphoria, that most of the time this resolves itself over time for the vast majority of people. But friends, our kids, even in the church, need to have the space and the room to express their struggle, their insecurity, their discomfort, and their awkwardness, and need to know that we hear them, that we can identify with that, and that we will work them through it. Fourthly, be positive. Be first, be clear, be consistent, and be positive. Show them and teach them with grace and truth. Let's not be a people who simply rail against sin and rail against evil of the world. Let's just not give our kids a list of things not to do and punish them if they disobey. Let's teach our kids God's positive vision for sex, for gender, for marriage, because positive messages carry more weight than negative messages. Don't just teach them what we're against. Teach them why. Show them how the biblical worldview is beautiful, healthy, functional, and God-glorifying. Use questions and discussions that they may have about sexuality and gender as an opportunity to affirm them as a boy or a girl. Ask them questions. What do you love about being a boy? What do you find hard about being a girl? Teach them to hold firm to a biblical worldview, to be able to articulate what they believe and why. And teach them that, yes, there are people in our schools and in our communities with different perspectives, different beliefs and lifestyles, not just transgenderism, but all sorts of realities that are opposed to God's design, that are sinful, that are dangerous, and that our primary disposition towards those outside the faith should be love and respect and compassion, should be sadness for those that are broken. And so let me just wrap up my section here with three principles for what it means for us to wisely and winsomely engage the world. 
in the midst of gender confusion, but, but these principles apply to any other type of confusion or sin or falsehood. These principles relate to your family, to your school, to your community, to your workplace, to our local governments. First of all, it's conviction. We must, must hold our convictions with both grace and truth. We must stand in both love for the lost and love for the Lord. The Lord is the only one that we are ultimately accountable to. And so 1 Timothy 3.15 calls us to be pillars of truth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. In, in Ephesians 5.7-8, we're told that we cannot participate, we cannot affirm, we cannot approve of sin or evil or falsehood or brokenness. We cannot become partners or partakers of darkness. We're called to walk as children of light and expose the darkness. And so to be men and women of conviction, to teach our children to be uh, men and women of conviction means we don't compromise what we believe. It means we stand graciously as pillars of truth. It might mean that God calls you to get involved in your local school board or not just vote your conscience, but maybe some of us and some of our children need to run for office and fight for fair, safe, rational legislation. To be a person of conviction might mean that you send the audio link to this seminar to a friend or neighbor. It may mean that the seven challenges to the transgender ideology that Pastor Matt articulated, you become familiar with, and you're also able to articulate those things. And yes, being a person of conviction may mean at some point you lose a friend, you lose a family member. Not because you can't love them, but because they demand they will only stay in your life if you affirm their choices. For some of you, it may mean losing a job because you refuse to sign a diversity statement if that statement is against your own personal conscience. So to be a person of conviction, but also a person of connection, because our Lord taught us in John 17 that while we are not of the world, we are sent into the world. And so we cannot put our head in the sand. We cannot hide. We cannot go out of the world. We must stay engaged. We must press into the mess. We must press into the confusion. We must offer food to those that are dying of hunger, light to those who are trapped in darkness, clarity to those who are overcome by confusion, and hope to those who are strangled by despair. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is addressing the depravity of adultery and incest in the church. And he clarifies and he says to the, the readers, we cannot go out of the world. From his perspective, it's inconceivable that Christians would not have some association with non-believers. He goes on to say that it's, it's not our place to judge the world. That's God's place. We need to maintain connection. Connection means reaching out to neighbors who might be living outside of biblical norms of gender and sexuality. It might mean God calls you to stay in a workplace that is incredibly difficult to navigate from the perspective of moral culture. It, it means, certainly, it means continuing to love children and family members who are struggling. Again, if you have a very specific person in your life or work situation, look at resources from the Gospel Coalition. Look at resources from Focus on the Family. So conviction, connection, but thirdly, compassion. See, sin is not only rebellion, it is enslavement. There's a huge difference between somebody who's pushing an, a transgender, transgender ideology and someone who's caught in personal confusion and deception of their gender identity. When Jesus looked at the crowds in Matthew chapter 6, he says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So many today we could describe as harassed and helpless, trapped in deception. And our response, our primary response, should be compassion. Could you imagine being so hurt, so lost, so blinded by darkness that you felt that your only hope was to take hormones or worse, have body parts removed to find your true identity? 
There are people that are so ensnared, so deceived, so trapped in the notion that living as a different identity, as a different gender will give them meaning, heal them from guilt, overcome their depression, their anxiety, their isolation. This is what they're resorting to. It should break our hearts and we should plead with God for mercy. Our primary disposition should not be judgment or anger or disgust. It should be compassion and sadness and sympathy. And so compassion means that we are to be people of prayer, to be faithful, to be diligent, to pray for those that are hurting, and to pray for those who would seek to push a harmful agenda. But it also means that we're hopeful. Compassion means that we trust in the work of the gospel. We share the gospel with boldness, with compassion. Because make no mistake about it, those that are confused and caught up in the transgenderism are fighting a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle going on in our day and age. And so we must hold these three principles together of conviction, connection, and compassion. And I will tell you, it would be far easier just to pick one and to focus on that. Even two would be easier than to hold all three. Right? If you were only had to be a person of conviction who had connection to a lost world but no compassion, that would be doable. Or let's say that you chose to have connection to a lost world and you tried to be full of compassion, but you said, I'm going to leave conviction behind. Maybe you could achieve that. But to stand in all three, I'm telling you, is going to require the Holy Spirit to guide us and fill us and empower us. Amen? So I'm going to invite Matt to come up to give us some further insight on how we can love those that are confused and those that are hurting. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Uh, I want to make sure we, we try to have some, some time for, for Q&A after this, so I'll go through this pretty quickly. How, how do we love transgender people? Uh, I remember I, when, I was, when I went to college at Liberty, I, I worked at a restaurant for a short time, and it was kind of a culture shock to me at the time. Because the, like, the manager who hired me was gay, the guy who, who trained me was gay, the person who worked at the back was gay, and, and, and it was just very much a different experience because I was at Liberty, I was in a Christian school, so going to work was, was very different for me. I remember coming to work one day and having a group of people convince one of my other coworkers that she should have an abortion. And I was like, every time it was like, it was very hard if, at times. And so I, God taught me a lot of lessons about, about loving people that are in hard places. But I'm going to say, I, I have four points here. But it's not really anything like earth-shattering. Like how we share the gospel with, with transgender people or people in different circumstances is not really all that different than how we share it with anyone else. There's no magic formula. But I think there are some things we can keep in mind. Number one, we want to remember that some people's sin is more visible than others. What I mean by that is there are sins that we call, consider hidden sins. Just, you, you're, you can hide them a lot easier, right? Malice. Unbelief, covetousness, laziness, lust, deceit, you know, you can, you can often tuck those away and hide those, and they're not super visible, right? But there are other sins that just everyone can see. They're public, right? When somebody is staggering around with drunkenness or addiction or they're strung out on a street corner or, the, or they've got sinful anger and they're raging out and you can, you can see it coming out of them or boastfulness or crude speech or, or cross-dressing or presenting oneself as transgender, these, these are all visible sins. They're right out in the open for everyone to see. I just think it's important for us to remember that we're all sinners, but some sins are more easily displayed than others. But that doesn't mean they're not, that doesn't mean that they're more deadly necessarily. Remember, there, there, is a, there it will come a day when all sin will be uncovered and judged, right? Even hidden sins. And I would say some of the most deeply hidden sins are sometimes the grossest the most ingrained, the most vile. Um, 
And oftentimes, they're the ones that can be easily hidden by a religious or a gentle manner. Consider unbelief, right? Unbelief of, of, of things that like are disgusting to our Lord. Unbelief is that. But so many people can hide unbelief under a, a veneer of religion. Remember, Christ came to die to redeem people of all kinds of sins, visible, invisible, common, or uncommon. So I think just we should go, you know, recognizing that we should be humble in how we think about people. Uh, number two, uh, just simply get to know people. Like, I think we have to get past the place where we're shocked with things, right? And that's actually like a discipline. Like, when somebody comes up and, and shares something with you, like, it can be really challenging. And oftentimes, I'll, I'll be talking with someone with, with any kind of sin issue, and like, I have to mentally say, like, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the words right now. And like, and just like, have a studied, like, I'm not going to like respond, you know, and if you're a parent, maybe you've had to do that with your kids when your kids confess something to you that inside you're thinking like, oh no, but you just have to be like, nope, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, you know, be, because we, we want to be, you know, able to, to love people and be humble how we think about them. But we want to get to know people. We want to be hospitable. So number two is we want to get to know them. You know, one thing that was, that's great about the gospel is that Jesus came to us. Right? We talk about incarnational ministry. You know, I think that's something that we can do, right? It may be challenging for you if it's somebody who is at work or at school or somewhere else where, like, if you're going somewhere and you see a man wearing women's clothing, like, no doubt about it, like, yes, it, it can be disarming, right? And there's maybe a part of you that just feels uncomfortable, like, you know, I, I'm just going to avoid this situation, you know. I think that there can be, some of us can have that, you know. But you know what? I think if you're in a situation where you can introduce yourself, hi, I'm Matt. Like, that's part of incarnational ministry, like going to people, getting to know them. You know, maybe you can actually sit down and have lunch with them, right? Breaking bread isn't necessarily approval of sin. Just ask Jesus, right? He was a friend of sinners. He ate with them. And you may get, be misunderstood, you know, but simply having a meal with someone and getting to know them is a way to love them without necessarily approving everything about their life, Right? Um, you can even invite them over to your din dinner for your house if you feel that's appropriate. If your family situation is conducive to it, you can even invite them to church if they'd come. Right? Get to know somebody. Like, actually, that's something that you can do. Uh, listen to their story about their life. Not just, so tell me why you're transgender. I mean, like, just get to know about their family, their upbringing, their life. Like, it's a person, you know, a person who's struggling, who's sin, you know, whose struggles are very open, you know, but you can ask them good questions, get to know them. I think it's important that we be patient with people as well. We might think, you know, that if we talk to someone, we can, we can convince them out of it and they're not going to struggle with it. Like, we all know that there's, there's different orders of sin, I'll say. There are some things we do that are just like impulsive acts, right? Just a sin that you do on the fly. Oh, I wasn't, I was tired. I wasn't thinking, you know, I don't really struggle with this. I just like said it, like a, a curse word slipped and I haven't done that in years, whatever it might be. Then sometimes you have other sins that are like habits, you know, things you just kind of do, you know, like, oh, I, I do this regularly. I shouldn't do this, but it kind of keeps popping up. Then you have sins that are like addictions, right? Like, man, this has a hold on. I'm enslaved to this sin. And then I'll always go even further and say there's things, sins that are I, sins of identity, like, you can't imagine your life without this sin, right? And one of the things that's so challenging about sins of, you know, in the LGBT world or sexuality is, like, it's, it's ingrained in someone's identity. It's not, this is something I do. It's, this is who I am, right? And, and I believe the gospel gives us a new identity in Christ, but I think when we're dealing with people, we just need to be patient, right? By the way, 
free advice for anybody. Like, just be patient with Christians in general, with anybody. Be patient with your kids. Be, be, be patient when you're sharing the gospel with people because lives are messy and, and we grow slowly and faith comes about slowly sometimes. And be empathetic. Nobody, anybody who experiences gender dysphoria who's questioning, they obviously have a wound and they're wearing that. They're wearing that wound openly. So three, pray for them. I mean, this, and this is one of the most obvious things, right? Where you might have the inclination to judge them, where you might have the inclination to mock, where you might have the inclination to recoil, tank that and turn it around and pray for them instead. Pray for their salvation because that's the greatest need, right? Pray for wisdom in communicating, right? In, in the manner in which you speak to somebody, right? Whether family, friend, neighbor, son or daughter, I think it's important when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, with this is to pray that someone's sin would be made clear to them, right? Because that, that's something that's hard, right? Part of, part of sin is we're, we're blind to our own faults. We don't see ourselves. We don't see God. We don't see things as they, as they really are. And that, that's part of it, coming to a knowledge of the truth. I think it's good to pray for the prevention of drastic steps. As we said, that there's, there's one thing when a person, if a boy begins painting his nails and wearing makeup and so forth, you know, it's another thing if they begin taking life-changing hormones, if they, if, they have, if they schedule surgery, if they, you know, there's, there, there's, there's things that can affect them for the rest of their life, right? And you can be praying like, Lord, would you, would you guard them? Would you protect them against these decisions that will impact the rest of their life, Lord, it, hoping that they will come, come around from it? Pray against the enemy's lies. I tell you what, there, there are times when I, I've, I've talked to people, I remember I've taught, this is a different situation, but I've talked to people who are cutting, for example, two completely different situations, two different time periods, and they feel like they're saying the same, like they're reading from the same script. Like Satan has the same lies, he's just whispering in different people's ears. Just pray against, you know, the enemy's lies. Pray for wholeness and, and mental health, right? Because there, there's, it's more than just you know, you need to change your clothes or not say this. Like, there's, there's, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, right? And it, it's, 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 a lot of times there's family dynamics that are unhelpful or there's a friendship dynamic that's unhelpful, unhealthy. And there's a whole lot that needs to be prayed for. And then just pray for support um, for yourself and for them. And by the way, you can fill in the blank for all the different ways that you can pray. But the main thing I want to do is, is turn yourself to prayer for this person. And lastly, fourthly, I just want to engage them with the gospel, and I think it's, a, it's good to gauge, with, with, gauge a person's openness to spiritual conversations, right? If you get to know them, and I, we've said this, and I know me and Chris have talked about this, um, you know, if you, if you talk to people, if you ask meaningful questions, eventually you'll, you'll find your way to, you know, just about life, you know, more than just, so what sports team do you like, or what, what books do you like? You start asking important questions about life and meaning and so forth, eventually you'll find your way to spiritual conversations. Um, and you can get, you know, hey, do you, you know, do you have a religious background? Did you ever go to church when you were growing up? Did your, did your family go to church? Or, you know, what, do you have a, do you, in, in all of this, what, what do you think God kind of, you know, do you, do you think about God in, in all your struggles? And have you ever turned to him? Or do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Or, hey, do you, do you ever pray? I mean, just like asking just kind of questions to get a, a sense. And if they're just like open or if they're shut, you'll get a sense where you can go with the conversation. But something else I want to point out, and this is, you know, this was actually pointed out to me today, and again, I was reminded of this. You'd be surprised, I think, when we see sometimes people who have very, like, exterior, you know, like their sins are very visible, you think, well, oh, that person, <laughs> they're never coming to Christ, right? I think it's actually oftentimes the exact opposite. Like, people, you know, you'd be surprised how open LGBTQ, hold on, LGBTQ people are 
to hearing the gospel. And I'm actually going to flip it and say, I think sometimes the hardest people to reach the gospel are people who've grown up in church their whole lives, and they've heard the gospel hundreds or thousands of times and rejected it again and again and again, and they're hardened. It, it's, it, it could be harder to preach the gospel at a Christian high school right, than sometimes talk to somebody who, is, who knows that they're a sinner, who's willing to hear the hard truth, Right? Not always. I mean, it can be different. I'm just saying you, be, you might be surprised, right? So don't just write somebody off because they're, they appear odd or they appear different or their sins are, are, are very outward. So um, just, you know, be willing to engage the gospel. And just know, like I so said, when, when someone is struggling like that, like there's, there's kind of an open wound, like there's also an open opportunity. And, uh, and me, me and Tim had a conversation one time, and he said, Matt, don't think I'm weird for saying this, but I really enjoy doing funerals. <laughs> And, uh, and the reason why he said that was because, man, it's not because it's a joyous thing always, but at, but at a funeral, when someone has died, there's an openness to the gospel that you may not have at other times. People are thinking about, about mortality, and they're, th- and, and they're more willing to say, hey, can I pray with you? They're like, yes, please. You know, like you're just able to have conversations that you may not have to in other situations, and you're able to bring the gospel to comfort people. And so I'm saying, like, you just may have a wonderful opportunity here. So rather than recoiling or saying that's odd or weird, like, be bold and by God's Spirit, dive in and say, I'm going to reach out to this person. I'm going to sit down and talk to them. I'm going to ask them some questions and see where it goes. And you'd be surprised how often they might be open to the gospel. And where they are, and then look for where the gospel speaks. And the gospel is a multifaceted jewel. There's a lot of things that talks about sanctification, justification, regeneration, redemption, lots of big words, right? I think a couple that are really pertinent is the idea of redemption, that God reclaims us from our sin and our lostness, right? He finds us when we are broken and brings us back to wholeness. Regeneration, right? The idea that you can be born again. You can start over. You can have a new identity, a new life. That aspect of the gospel is certainly meaningful, right? And resurrection, the fact that God will redeem our bodies, that God cares about our bodies, right? And there's something there. there there's a lot more we could add here, but in, in closing, uh, we're not rewriting the book. Reaching out to people who are transgender, um, or struggling with their gender identity, it's not always that different from reaching out to anybody. In closing, there, there's so much more we could say and so many aspects about this issue we couldn't touch on. We did a whole lot of study, and there's like, man, don't have time for that, don't have time for that, you know, but I hope that we, we set out to accomplish a few things. One, we did want to inform you, because this is a difficult issue, and it is confusing, and it, it is, you know, uh, and you may have encountered this from a number of different angles. Maybe it's because you heard something at school, you know, or you, uh, there's something, some new diversity initiative at your work, and it's just like, where'd this come from? And I wanted to help you uh, understand the movement, where it comes from, why it's gaining steam. We wanted to equip you to address this issue, to challenge it, to, to uh, be able to speak to this issue uh, when, it, when it comes up to your kids, your neighbors, your friends. Wanted to encourage you to engage trans and gender confused people with grace and truth right, to be loving and to be bold with the gospel of Christ. But lastly, and this one came up recently, I, I really wanted to unite in fellowship with you. We've done a lot of seminars. We've never had one that had this many people sign up, right? And I think that you're probably, at a, you may be at a place where you're feeling more and more like, wow, I don't fit in the world, <laughs> right? Our views are becoming less and less popular in the world. And there's something about people gathering around, standing on God's truth that is encouraging. I think it's what the church is supposed to do. I think in the early church experienced this a lot when they're in the Roman world, right? A community that stands together on truth no matter what is going on around us. So I hope that you're encouraged something else just by the fellowship of being in a room together.
I want to uh, read something real quick and then uh, pray, and then we'll take some time to do uh, a, few, uh, a few questions. I was in my office today, and, I, and I, the words of uh, one of my favorite hymns came to mind, the third verse of one of my favorite hymns, and I'd just like to read. I will not sing it, but I will, I will read the last the, the verse to you, and then I'll pray. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that, oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and the earth and heaven won. Pray with me. God, this is your world. You made it good. You made it orderly. And you made it glorious. God, and sin has ruined it. Our sin has ruined your world. And God, we in this room confess that we too are perpetrators against you. We are also victims of our own sin. God, it is your image that you've graciously put in men and women that we see God being mocked, twisted, and contorted. And we mourn that. God, it is your own image bearers who are lying and being lied to who are confused and confusing others. God, and, and we look out the world right now, and sometimes we just have to look up and throw our hands out and say, God, what is this foolishness? What is this madness? God, but Scripture asks another question. What is man that you are mindful of us? Why would you not send your wrath upon us? And yet, God, instead, you sent your Son. The glory of heaven. He left the glory of heaven in the darkness of, to come to the darkness of this world to redeem a people to belong to you, to ransom a people for God, to rescue a, a people from our own stupidity and blindness and callousness and sin. God, we thank you that in Christ we are among them, who have Christ as our Savior and Lord. God, what is the hope of the nations? Is it not your beloved Son and him alone? Is it not his name that you have said above all others? Is it not his name that you command all people to believe in for salvation? God, we mourn for our world, for our neighbors, for children. God, because the dark seems so dark as to be impenetrable. Yet we are confident that Christ is a powerful Savior, the hope of nations, the great high priest who can save to the uttermost. If he can love and save the thief, the murderer, the liar, surely he can save those who are confused about their very identity. So God, I pray that you'd ground us in truth. You would stir us to greater faith, greater courage. Let us have the strength to say no to false gospels. Grow us, Lord, to reach full maturity and not be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Let us be a community that supports one another when and if we have to make hard decisions that may cost us dearly in the world to stand up against lies. But Lord, let us also be a community that is not fearful but faithful, who reaches out in love with the gospel to those who need it most. That living hope be a church where sinners of all kinds can repent, believe, find hope, and family. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.